Grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have to forgive me. Uh, this, I would say that I'm over my cold, except I feel like I have a bit of laryngitis. Can you hear that? No? Yes? Well, anyway, I'm not able to bark it out quite like I'm used to, but here we go. <clears throat> if I ask you to give an adjective that describes Jesus of Nazareth, what pops into your mind? How many of you instantly thought of the word fun? Okay. Maybe not so many. That's too bad. I say that because, because there's no way to read the Gospels and not conclude that Jesus lived with a spirit of joy and humor and warmth. You only have to notice this. When people were with him, they genuinely enjoyed themselves. Right? Take, take children. Ever known kids to throng around somebody who wasn't fun? Yet the Bible pictures Jesus as someone often mobbed by kids. Or working men. Would they voluntarily leave their jobs and families to go road tripping with someone who wasn't any fun? Yet that's precisely what fishermen like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and government workers like Matthew, and political activists like Judas, they were willing to do for the chance to hang out with Jesus. Women like Mary and Martha kept the light on in their homes just hoping Jesus might drop by. Burned out businessmen like Zacchaeus climbed trees in, hoping, in hopes of meeting him. Now, I'll tell you what. They were not hankering to be with a nag or with a wet blanket or a dull stick. And his teaching. Christ's vision of God and his kingdom was jammed with joy. He described God as an amazing dad who is willing to forgive unbelievably stupid acts by his kids, even by criminals when they come to their senses. Jesus pictured the kingdom of God as a place where people's tears got dried up and replaced by singing, where there was rejoicing over people being found or people coming home, and where banquet tables were overflowing and more and more chairs kept having to be hauled out from somewhere so that anyone who was willing to accept his invitation would be sure to find a place at the table. Do you know what his first miracle was? Do you remember this? Changing water into wine. And I mean a lot of wine. So a wedding party could keep going. One of the last things he did for his friends was to host a Passover feast. Tell them how eagerly he desired to share this meal with them and then speak of his hope that they might know his joy. My point is this. There's no way to conclude that Jesus was a killjoy of some kind. A red-faced prude. The founder of a pinch-lipped church lady religion. You know my church lady from SNL? Okay, maybe you don't. Now, there were people like that. They were called the Pharisees. And they really didn't like Jesus because he was the opposite. Jesus was life-affirming, joy-producing, and freedom-celebrating. We need to remember that when this week and next we learn about Christ's teaching on sex. See, because today it is normally assumed that though Jesus was fun and freedom-celebrating in everything else, when it comes to sex... He suddenly becomes the opposite, anti-fun, anti-joy, doesn't really know what he's talking about. That's the assumption. 
But come on, think about this. What are the chances that Jesus becomes wildly out of character when it comes to this one topic? Isn't it possible that actually it's we moderns that have not understood him? And having failed to really hear Christ, isn't it possible that modern ideas on sex and marriage are seriously missing something? Well, I'm putting it out there. Let's hear Jesus and the Bible out and then see what we think. Okay. <laughs> you know what I got to say? Carol heard this sermon last night. She said, oh, I just hate every time the word sex comes out of the pulpit. But uh, what can I do? It's a topic. We got to have it. Okay. So what seems obvious to most modern people is that sex is primarily for an individual to get happiness and fulfillment. That's what sex is for. According to moderns, you additionally might want to use it to build a family. You know, have kids. But the main thing sex is for is an individual's pleasure and fulfillment, however he or she wishes to pursue it. Duh, obviously, we think. What else could it be? We literally cannot imagine any other purpose for sex. And this is just what you would expect a person who lived in a consumer society as we do to think. Now we're going to look at the words of Jesus and the Bible in a moment. But first, I want to drill down more on how consumers think. Because we're immersed, we're immersed in consumer thinking about sex. There are other ways of thinking about it. But let's first understand our own culture. So think about what a consumer is and how a consumer relationship works. In a consumer relationship, you relate to who? A vendor. And you have a relationship there as long as the vendor is giving you good service, good product at a good price. Now, to illustrate this, we could pick any kind of vendor. But let's say, it's, let's say it's lumber. You know, you're buying two-by-fours. You buy them from Lowe's. Good lumber, good price. However, if you're regularly buying wood, you're not unaware of what's going on down 347 at Home Depot. And if you found out that Home Depot had dropped their price, well, you'd show up at Lowe's expecting the same thing. That's the nature of the consumer relationship. The vendor needs to adapt to the needs and the wants of the consumer. Or else what? Or else the consumer's out of there. Off to the lumber store that gives the better deal. This is actually how it constantly is between a consumer and any vendor. Now, that vendor could be a clothing store, could be an electronics store, doesn't matter. It works the same. The consumer says... We have a relationship, yeah, but you better keep adjusting to me because if you don't meet my needs, I'm out of here to the place down the road because, and here's the crucial words, because my needs are more important than the relationship here. If I can get my needs met better somewhere else, that's where I'll go. And what I'm saying is, this is how our culture thinks about sex. There's a product, if you will, a pleasurable and exciting product that I'm getting. But if you don't adjust to my needs and wants, or I see a better offer, I'm prepared to go elsewhere. Having 
That is more important to me than our relationship. What does the Bible teach? The complete opposite. Well, actually, hang on. (laughs) Before I talk about how the Bible teaches differently, I better just make it clear what it teaches that's the same. See, because the Bible affirms that sex is pleasurable and exciting, and it's supposed to be. People who've never read the Bible, they're the ones who think that the Bible's anti-sex, but it's absolutely untrue. There's no way the Bible is negative about sexual desire. Look for yourself. This morning, we read from Genesis, first book of the Bible. How does it start there? Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He is excited. The Bible, in short, begins with a naked man singing rapturously over a naked woman in the presence of God. (laughs) And the two become one flesh. And friends, the Bible does not later change its attitude toward all this. No, indeed. In fact, there are passages in the Song of Songs, book of the Bible, which would make you blush if I told you what they meant. And if you read them, you could tell what they mean without me. You're going to go, does this mean what it looks like it means? Yeah. Because they so openly celebrate the erotic desire between a wife and a husband. And Jesus thinks the same way. This stuff is the word of God. Okay, then. How is the Bible different from our culture? It's different specifically regarding the consumer-type relationship. From the Bible's point of view, the consumer attitude toward sex couldn't be more low-grade or ill-informed. In place of that, the Bible says the way to go, the only way to go, is the way of steadfast love. Steadfast love. What do I mean? Well, in a consumer relationship, you adjust to me or I'm off to the next place. But in a relationship of steadfast love, I will adjust to you because I'm going to seek your good no matter what. I've made a promise. What promise? A promise to never leave you. I'm not going after a better deal. I'm steadfast and loving right here. A promise to remain in this relationship and seek your good no matter what. Because, here it is, our relationship is more important than my needs. Our relationship is more important. It's a decision I've made. I'll love you whether or not you're meeting my needs the way I'd like. You can see this is... <laughs> this is This is a wonderful thing, and it's no mere consumer thing. Another word for a relationship of steadfast love is covenant. That word's practically dropped out of the English language, probably because we've been overwhelmed by consumer thinking. We should probably use both terms. Steadfast love describes the emotional component. My love is seeking to meet your needs and not my own. And covenant describes the decision aspect. I have made a commitment to do this, a vow, a promise. I think I hear voices. And if you haven't twigged to this yet, a relationship of steadfast love in covenant is exactly what the Bible means by marriage. What's this got to do specifically with sex? Everything. 
God's word says that while there are such things as consumer goods, sex is not one of them. It's a covenant good. Sex is a steadfast love in covenant good, not a consumer good. Jesus affirms this very clearly when he says, you shall not commit adultery. You know, before adultery ever happens, there's first a consumer mindset. I'm shopping around. But the greatness of sex, its healing, its magic, its profundity, happens only in a relationship of steadfast love in covenant. In fact, doing it any other way, including sex before marriage, actually detracts, actually erodes the ability and the power of sex to be healing, to be magic, to be profound for you. Now, I'm very aware how deeply what I'm saying contradicts what our culture says. I I wonder if you hear this anywhere else but here, and I don't talk about it that much. But let me try and and show you why this is right. Really right. Have you ever worked in retail? Actually, I don't just mean worked in retail. I mean, have you ever been the owner-operator of a store or of a shop? Might surprise you. I have. Of a coffee shop for a year. What a disturbing an anxious year that was. I'm so glad not to be in that year anymore. Why? Because you're constantly having to sell yourself and sell your product. Sell, sell, sell. You have to adjust to your customers. Keep them attracted. Even though you like them, you're never secure with them. Never at rest. Even with a smile on your face behind the counter, you're anxious underneath because they could go easily if you're not good enough. It is exactly the same with sex outside of marriage. Now, I realize when I say that, many of you are going to cross your arms and bristle. Okay. I just hope you remain open enough to understand what I'm saying because this is really going to help you. When people live together before they're married... That does not prepare them for a deeper relationship later, as is commonly supposed. And it's not just me saying this. You get anecdotally people say, oh yeah, that's what it does. I even hear old people saying this, advising their kids that they're totally wrong, and studies back me up. Instead, what it does, it injures them and disables their ability to love deeply, including in their future. How so? How so? Because when you're in a sexual relationship without marriage, you got to perform. You constantly, you got to market yourself. That's what you're doing. There's, no, there's nothing f- secure here. you got to perform and market yourself to your partner. Because if you don't, if you slip, if you're not good enough, you'll be dropped. Whoa. Sex before marriage, including living together, is a disturbing, anxious exercise in marketing and relations between two people. It's not making love with the freedom, ease, and joy born born of the security that God intends. Contrast that with marriage. It's God's idea. Where there's a promise, a commitment to steadfast love. Here, feelings do not remain anxiously on a merely transactional level, but they grow deep. They can risk going deep. 
and being vulnerable because of the covenanted security. You can be yourself, weaknesses and everything. When you're committed to the good of the other and they to you, no matter the feelings or difficulties of the moment, and all relationships have difficulties and problems, but even in spite of that, over time your love actually goes way deeper. Perhaps, though, you're resistant to what I'm saying here about marriage. So I still like what the world says better. Really? Well, listen, if you don't get my point, maybe you can see the same thing by looking at that other great covenant relationship, the one called parenting. All parents know that the kids aren't giving back and will never give back all that you're putting into them. Okay? It's, not, it's not an equal thing. However, this is not a consumer relationship. The kids constantly let you down. They misbehave. They under-respond to you on a regular basis. Nevertheless, as a parent, you're committed to love them, to seek their good no matter what. And as you do, what happens? Your feelings for them just become incredibly deep. Way deeper than your annoyance over the uncleaned room, etc. If you can see that, you got to see that the same thing happens in marriage too. And when both partners are covenant committed to each other like that, what happens? What happens? Well, it's like, it's like, oh my, what happens, okay? Mutual steadfast love turns out to be the ticket to the very deepest feelings that there can be between two people. Here's where sex fits into that. It cements this covenant, this steadfast love. It cements this, this two giving themselves to each other to become one. Sex cements it and celebrates it. <clears throat> sex is like 4th of July fireworks to say how happy I am about you, my wife. How happy we are about us. And it works not only to celebrate our commitment, but to renew it using physical pleasure. This is what sex is for to celebrate that marriage bond, the two becoming one, and by celebrating it, to strengthen it and cement it yet again. That's information, it seems to me, our culture has completely forgotten. Somewhere on Netflix, or, or maybe it was Hulu, but it was somewhere like that, I found that I was able to watch reruns of the Beverly Hillbillies. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. Then one day he was shooting at some food, and up from the ground comes some bubbling crude. Well, that is Texas tea. Right. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. The kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there. They said, California is the place you ought to be. So he loaded up the truck and moved to Beverly Hills, that is. Swimming pools, movie stars. Yeah. Now, we got people in this church who don't know those lyrics. Too young, too young. Too young to ever have seen the show. So let me explain it. The premise is that a family of hillbillies the Clampets become suddenly and unexpectedly rich and move from the Appalachian backwoods to a mansion in Beverly Hills, California. The thing is, though, they are totally and amusingly ignorant of anything but the backwoods. 
In episode two, I got up to episode two. Uh, Granny, Granny is washing clothes by hand in a tub out on the deck of their fabulous ornate marble swimming bowl. She says how lucky they are to have all the water they need for washing right here in the cement pond. They don't have to haul from the creek no more, although the water smells kind of funny. Something like that. She doesn't know that her mansion has indoor plumbing. She doesn't know that she has a washing machine in there. She has never before even seen a swimming pool. Granny and all the other clampets are cute, but we laugh at their ignorance. Our society today is like the clampets when it comes to sex. People don't know what it's for or how to use it. Because we only listen to other hillbillies about this, we don't even know what we don't know. But boy, is it great when a little good information comes along and we get sex figured out. God, who designed and gave us the whole wonderful thing, has told us in his word. It's not a consumer thing. That's just ignorant hillbilly stuff. It's a covenant good. Getting this right makes all the difference. Now, I can't make my voice louder than all the hillbillies out there. But I have prayed that the Holy Spirit will let your spirit know that this is right. And then what are you going to do? Well, if you've lived like a dumb hillbilly in the past, or if you're living like one now, I mean sexually, God is not going to strike you down. You're baptized. You believe in him. You are his child. You, would you strike down your own child? No. Well, he's not going to strike you down either. He loves you. So what should you do? Repent. That means change how you think. Get smart with the smartness of God. Think God's way and not the dumb world's way about sex and ask God for forgiveness if you have not done that yet in the past. You know, <laughs> he is definitely going to forgive you for your sexual sins. Now, why do I say definitely? Get this, because God is in a covenant relationship with you. Steadfast love. The only reason you'd ever be anxious that he won't forgive you is if you didn't know that and you thought that God had a consumer relationship with you. If you thought that if you don't perform, he's going to ditch you. But that's not it. God has a covenant relationship with you. A covenant of steadfast love. He made with you at the font, at the baptism. Did you get wet? He's made a covenant with you. What does it mean? It means your relationship with him is more important to him than your dumb sins and failures. You're totally secure in his love. He will never leave you. You've made a, he made a covenant with you. And you know what? The Lord renews and celebrates his covenant and his steadfast love for you when every time you come to his table, the Lord's Supper, here now, it, 
it gets personal and physical and mysteriously joyful. Christ gives you his body and he gives you his blood and he delights to be in communion with you. So yeah, there's no question. He's going to definitely forgive you when you come to him. There's no question at all. So do that. Seek relationship renewal with God by getting his forgiveness and receiving Christ's body and blood and then put your life in his hands to do things his way. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus for life everlasting. Amen.